I invite you to turn your, in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, to chapter 3. And as usual, we're going to pick up where we left off. I think it was about six weeks ago. Our text this morning is going to be verses 16 through 18. John three sixteen through 18. You guys probably have that first one memorized. The, as you're turning there, um, the previous section we covered was, as a reminder, it was the account of Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews, and he was one of the leading teachers of Israel. And this dialogue, we, we split up into two parts. So we looked at verses 1 through 8 the first time, and then last time we looked at verses 9 through 15. Now, there's considerable debate over where exactly the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus ends. More specifically, the point of dispute is where exactly does Jesus' response to Nicodemus, starting in verse 10, end? Some believe it ends at verse 15, while others believe that it ends at verse 21. The Greek manuscripts, the ancient Greek texts, do not contain quotation marks. It's a little inconvenient. So no quotation marks, and while it's often obvious to translators where a quotation begins, he said, I think this is where the quote begins, it's not so obvious as to where it exactly ends, at least not all the time. Sometimes there's a question of where exactly that quotation should end. The disagreement regarding the quote starting in John 3.10 is reflected in the ESV translation by the fact that while in the text, in their translation, the quotation continues all the way to the end of verse 21. You see that, right? And if you have one of those red-letter Bibles, you're like, letters all the way through 21 are red. Well, okay, so in the text, those quotation marks go all the way through verse 21. However, in the ESV, they, they also include a footnote at the end of verse 15 that says what? It says... Some interpreters hold that the quotation ends at verse 15. So they're giving you that information to let you know the decision they made, but it's also possible that the quotation ends at verse 15. And with regard to Bible translations, um, a number of them do what the ESV did. They continue the quote to verse, through verse 21, but the NET Bible and the NIV Bible translations end the quotation at verse 15. And that is where I would end the quotation as well. So I'm setting this up just so you are wondering, why are you, uh, isn't the conversation still going? I don't believe it is. So I believe the quotation ends there as well. So if it's red letter Bible for you, just ignore the red. Pretend it's black. Um, and here, here's why. And not to get into all the technical detail, but just, just so you know, this isn't arbitrary decision making here. Uh, not only is there a notable shift from the use of the present tense to the past tense after verse 15, and even just reading your translation, you kind of see there's some kind of shift, and if that was Jesus still talking, he's talking differently now. 
but it goes from present tense to past tense. There, there's also, there are also certain words and expressions used in verses 16 through 21 that we do not find spoken by Jesus anywhere else. And that instead appear to be unique to the Apostle John, who used them in the prologue of his gospel and in his first epistle. Statements such as, well, in the ESV it says only son, but there's a term, some translations say only begotten. That, that term appears to be unique to John. Jesus doesn't use that of himself. The, the phrase believe in the name is another thing that John uses where we don't see Jesus using it. And also do the truth in verse 21. So, again, those are some of the reasons why it seems to be that it's more likely it's the, the words of John commenting after the quotation from Jesus. Now, if the conversation ends at verse 15, then what do we have starting in verse 16? From verses to 16, 21, what is this? Well, it's, it's a word of explanation and reflection given by the Apostle John to his readers. To you guys, to us, to his readers. In light of that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, before he continues on with the narrative, which he picks back up in verse 22. So think of it as a parenthesis. Put parentheses around that section. It's a comment from the narrator, from the author to the reader before the narrative picks up again. And at this point in John's gospel, he had just given the account in verses 1 through 15 of Jesus' explanation of the way of salvation. It's a significant moment in John's gospel. We just got Jesus' explanation of the way of salvation. So before moving on, John wanted to emphasize and expand upon Jesus' words for the sake of his readers so that they might grasp the weight and significance of what he said to Nicodemus. Does that make sense? This was the first gospel conversation in the narrative. Leading up to this moment, this, the conversation between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, leading up to this conversation, leading up to this moment, Jesus had been identified in the gospel as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the Son of God and the Christ. And in, verse, uh, in th- chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, we got to read his explanation of salvation to one of the top religious officials in Jerusalem. And what did he say? I know it's been a while. What did he say? One must be born from above, born of the Spirit, in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. Not even Nicodemus, a leading religious leader among the Israelites, got a pass. The reality check that he got and that the reader gets, that we get when we read these words from Jesus' statements, was that neither your religious devotion, nor your discipline and self-denial, nor your rigorous studies, nor your position and influence among others, nor your nationality make you right with God. None of those things make you right with God. None of those things can make you right with God. Try as you may. Give yourself 
to them as you may. They do not make you right with God. None of these things earn you a place in God's everlasting kingdom. You must be born from above. You must be made new. Can you make yourself new? You can't. You must be given spiritual life. You must be transformed, not on the outside, but first on the inside. And this is the sovereign work of who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Such truth should humble you and bring you to the end of yourself. That's what it should, do, should have done to Nicodemus. And if you remember last time, I think that it stuck with him and it worked in him. And eventually, it did humble him and bring him to the end of himself. And it appears that he became a believer. He, he finally did believe. Later in John's gospel, towards the end. But this truth should humble all of us and bring us to the end of ourselves so that we realize that we have no choice but to look in faith beyond ourselves, beyond our efforts, beyond our self-assessment of our own goodness, which there's none, inherently. We must look beyond ourselves to God, who alone can graciously save us. And the basis upon which God graciously saves sinners is Jesus' one-time work of atonement on the cross. He, as he said, he had to be lifted up. He had to die for the sins of his people. All whom the Father had graciously chosen beforehand to save and predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We just heard about adoption last Sunday. Salvation is according to the sovereign will of the Father. It is accomplished through the atoning sacrifice of the Son. And it is applied by means of the life-giving work of the Spirit. Do you see the Trinity at work in salvation? Sinners cannot be justified before God by any work of their own. Rather, they can only be justified before God by faith in the all-sufficient work of Christ alone. He did the work. You trust in the work he did, not in anything you do or can do. And if the Spirit has truly given you life, then you will truly be believing in Christ. If there is no new birth, then there is no saving belief. Now, in light of all that Jesus had said to Nicodemus, John took the opportunity to provide some further explanation and reflection for his readers. John did not want his readers to miss the call to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, so that they might be saved. And we are the readers today. Were you listening carefully to the words of Jesus during the two sermons in which we covered what he said to Nicodemus? Were you listening carefully? Were you taking those things to heart? Your religious and moral efforts are all deficient, but Jesus' righteousness and work of atonement are all sufficient. And in order for his atonement to be applied to you, 
personally. And for his righteousness to clothe you personally. The Holy Spirit must give you spiritual life and make you new. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? It is only those who believe, and let's expand upon that. It is only those who believe and continue to believe and manifest the transforming power of God in their life through increasing submission to the word of God in all of life, through increasing uh, and increasing conformity to the likeness of God. So manifesting God's power through your increasing submission to his word and increasing conformity to the likeness of the Son of God. Only those are those who are born from above and have eternal life. Is that you? Does that describe you? Or do you believe and that's it? What is the nature of your belief? So listen now to John's proclamation in verses 16 through 18. We'll look at the second half next week. John writes this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, keep in mind that this comes right after Jesus' statement that he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up in order that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is the eternal Son of God who had come into the world on a mission to save sinners. And in verses 16 through 18, the Apostle John essentially makes three claims regarding Jesus' saving mission in order to impress upon his readers the need to believe in him. In the first part of verse 16, he makes a claim about the origin of Jesus' saving mission. Then, continuing on through Verse 17, he makes a claim about the purpose of Jesus' saving mission. And finally, in verse 18, he makes a claim about the result of Jesus' saving mission. So in the first part of verse 16, then, John says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in that, we see John's claim regarding the origin of Jesus' saving mission. What is it? It's the love of God. The love of God. John here really draws out the implications of Jesus' statement that he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up in order that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The atoning death of the Son was in accordance with the will of the Father. And in order for the Son to give his life as a ransom for sinners, the Father first had to give him. Such a gift 
Such an immense sacrifice is a demonstration of the astonishing love of God the Father. Because who are the objects of that love? Sinners. Enemies of God. Yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Astonishing love of God. One commentator states, The atonement proceeds from the loving heart of God. His love is not a vague, sentimental feeling, as we often, it's often used in our culture. But his love is not a vague, sentimental feeling, but a love that costs. His love is a love that costs. God gave, he says, God gave what was most dear to him. God gave what was most dear to him. God's love towards those who believe is seen most clearly and most gloriously in the gift of Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, if you are believing in Christ, you can never doubt the love of God for you because it is on display. It is clear. It was clearly manifested in the gift of his son. This is the way in which God's love for the world was demonstrated. Now, John's use of the term world in this verse coincides with the fact that Jesus said that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus did not say to Nicodemus that eternal life would be granted to every Israelite who believed in him, but to everyone who believed in him. Jesus had come to give his life as a ransom not just for people from one nation in particular, but for people from all nations. The Jews wrongly perceived that God's love was for them and their nation alone, and that the coming of Christ would bring only blessing to them and ruin to the Gentiles. However, they had lost sight of the fact that God had formed them as a people and a nation with the specific intention to bring his blessing to the rest of the nations through them. When God called their forefather Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation, he promised that in him not only would all the nations of the earth be blessed, but also all the families of the earth would be blessed. It was God's intention from the beginning that through the righteous Messiah, his Holy One, whom he would raise up within his chosen nation, he would reconcile to himself persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and make them a part of his heavenly family and his glorious kingdom in which they will mediate his rule upon the earth in everlasting peace. That's been his plan from the beginning. It doesn't end with, with Israel. His nation was a means to bring the Messiah of that nation through whom blessing would come to the world. Thus, through Jesus Christ comes hope for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The hope of salvation was not for Israel alone. Jesus made it clear that not, only, or that not every individual Israelite would be saved, but only those who are born from above and thus believe. The same is true 
of those from all other nations, only those who are born of the Spirit and thus believe in the Son will see and enter the kingdom of God. To not believe this testimony of the Apostle John is to spurn the love of God and to have only the expectation of his wrath. That is what unbelief is, right? If you do not believe this testimony, you are spurning the love of God, the costly love of God, the astonishing, costly love of God who gave his son. So, we saw John's claim regarding the origin of Jesus' saving mission. Now, as John continues, we'll see his claim regarding the purpose of Jesus' saving mission. And starting at the beginning of verse 16, reading the whole thing now, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here's another way of translating this verse that draws out the grammar in more detail, which I believe is helpful. I'll include Jesus' statement in the previous verses. Jesus said to Nicodemus, It is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up in order that everyone who is believing in him may have eternal life. And then John follows with this with an explanation to his readers. For God so loved the world that as a result... He gave his only son in order that everyone who is believing in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What was the purpose of Jesus' saving mission as articulated by Jesus himself and then again by the Apostle John? Well, it was to secure salvation for believers. That is, it was to do the necessary work of atoning for the sins of everyone who believes in him, thus securing eternal life for each and every one of them. There would be no eternal life for anyone in the entire human race if the Son of God had not come willingly to lay down his life, his perfectly righteous life, and be lifted up on the cross. There would be no eternal life if he did not come. There would be no eternal life if he did not willingly come to make atonement on behalf of sinners by means of his death. All would perish. All would perish if the Son of God had not come to give his life as a ransom. But he came, right? He came. And he died for the sins of his people. And he rose again. And he gives eternal life to everyone for whom he died. That is, to all who believe in him. If you are not believing in him as he truly is, if you are not continuing to believe in him as he truly is and manifesting his transforming power in your life through increasing submission to his word and conformity to his likeness, then whatever belief you claim to have is bankrupt. Listen. Everyone in here probably claims that they believe in Jesus Christ, that they're a Christian. But not all of you are, just based on what Scripture says. There are many who have an untrustworthy belief. We read about that. Who appear to trust in Jesus, but then there's no real substance. 
no transforming power to the faith they claim to have in Jesus. If that's you, your claim is bankrupt. And that means you're still really in bondage to your sin, which means you are still an enemy of God. In your heart, at least, yourself is the one who's on the throne. Not, Not the Lord Jesus. And unless you truly repent and believe in the Lord Jesus as you're called to, as scriptures call you to do, you will die in your sins and be justly condemned by God to perish under his wrath eternally in hell. You don't live forever, right? Death is certain, and you don't know when that time will come. So if that's you, if if your faith has no substance, if there's no real power of God in your life, no real interest in the things of God, then don't harden your heart. Don't deceive yourself. And actually... The reality is, in the present time, this is the favorable time for you. Because even today could be the day of your salvation if you would actually humble yourself. If you would actually confess your sinfulness before God and repent of your rebellion against him. And trust in Jesus Christ, his son, as both Savior and Lord. Not just empty words, but truly doing that. John emphasizes the purpose of Jesus' saving mission further in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Again, when John speaks of the world being saved through Christ, his use of this term world indicates that God's gracious plan of salvation extends beyond his chosen nation, Israel, to all the nations of the earth. It is limited to those who believe. But nonetheless, its scope is worldwide because those who believe and are ransomed by the Son will be from every tribe and language and people and nation, as we've said. And such was the will of the Father from the beginning who graciously chose them all for salvation beforehand. Now, for John's Jewish readers, this would have been an important point for them to get. To Israelites, the coming of their Messiah meant the restoration of their nation and kingdom and the judgment of their enemies, the Gentile nations around them. Now, that is, in fact, something that God has repeatedly promised throughout the scriptures. But it is something that will not happen until the second coming of Christ, when he will finally bring the kingdoms of this world to an end and establish his everlasting kingdom upon the earth. That's when that will be fulfilled, that expectation. The nature of his first coming, however, was also foretold in scriptures, in the scriptures, most notably in Isaiah 53, where he is portrayed The coming Christ is portrayed as the suffering servant of the Lord who would bear the iniquities of many and make many to be accounted righteous. The saving mission of Christ at his first coming was necessary uh, in order to make his people fit to enter his kingdom. 
So he's not going to come and establish his kingdom if the people are not justified before God, if their sins are not atoned for. No one enters the kingdom if he didn't come the first time. So his first coming was necessary to make his people fit to enter his kingdom, which he would establish at his second coming, which he will establish at his second coming. The Israelites were in need of saving just as much as the Gentiles because they too lacked righteousness and were sinners before God. John tells his readers that the purpose of God sending his son into the world was not so that he would judge the world, for if that was the case, then what? No one would be left standing. If the first order of business is all right, judgment, then no one survives. All would be lost. For as the scripture says, there is no one who is righteous and without sin. Rather, Jesus came so that the world would be saved through him. In other words, God's purpose in sending his son into the world, that is, at the first coming of Christ, was so that his son would make atonement for the sins of his people, so that on the basis of his perfectly sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice of himself on the cross, everyone in the world who believes in him would be forgiven by God, accounted righteous, granted eternal life, and thus be graciously saved from perishing forever. He came to save. Finally, in verse 18, we see John's claim regarding the result of Jesus' saving mission. Verse 18, in verse 18, we read, Whoever believes in him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And a more literal translation would be as follows, just again to draw out some of the uh, details of the grammar because some things kind of don't stand out as much in English, uh, but try to doing it more literally here. The one who is believing in him is not being judged and therefore condemned. It's actually the word is judged. But when it's the judgment of God to the sinner, the guilty sinner would be condemned. But yet it says what? The one who is believing in him is not being judged and condemned. But the one who is not believing already has been judged and condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, John, he did just say in the previous verse that what? God did not send his Son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't send him to judge. However, what we see here is that as a result of his coming, a clear distinction was made among men. And by dis that distinction, the judgment of God was revealed. The whole world was divided into two basic camps. Those who continually believe in the Son and those who don't. Those who are continually believing in the Son and those who are not. And I say continually believe because 
genuine saving faith in Christ is not temporary, but permanent. If you remember a little while back, I had brought up the example of, of the man who grew up in the Christian home, right, and, and appeared to be a Christian for so many years of his life and all the way up into his 40s, and then he finally renounced the faith. And even at that point had become a pastor of a huge church and everything, right? Was that saving faith? Was that ever saving faith? No. How do we know? Because it did not endure to the end. Saving faith is not temporary but permanent. And it's permanent, it's continuous belief, because it is a faith, genuine faith, saving faith, is a faith that is granted and empowered by God. It's not your own willpower. It's not a work of the flesh. It is something that is granted to you and empowered by God. So saving faith in Christ endures to the end because God causes it to endure. Remember the example of Job. No matter what happened, he did not curse God. His faith was tested by fire. And it came out as gold, right? Those who continually believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and thus are saved through him and have eternal life, John says they are not being judged and condemned by God. They are not being judged by God. It's as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who has at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Those who are believing in him are not judged. They are not condemned. But the opposite, the opposite is true for those who do not continually believe in the Son. They, as John says, they stand condemned. They are condemned. They are already judged and condemned. Why? Because they refuse to believe in the name of the only Son of God. As Peter said in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do not continually believe in the Son. You have already been judged. You are under the judgment of God. You don't need to wait until you personally stand before God to know what your judgment is going to be. It's not a mystery. It's not an unknown. John says it's plain. There is a distinction made. You don't have to wait till you stand before God. You need only ask what you believe concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ and whether or not you are truly following after him in obedient faith. 
does what you believe line up with what the scriptures say concerning him? Many people might claim to believe in Jesus, and yet they, they deny him because they ignore half of what he said. I mean, even in scripture, we see, why do you call me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? Can't claim ignorance. God gave us his word. Does your life demonstrate that your belief in Christ is genuine? We've talked about that, right? The importance of examining yourself, testing yourself to see if you really are in the faith. The, the greatest tragedy would be to be self-deceived, to think that you are saved and expecting heaven, when when you die, you're, you end up being condemned to hell. Right? To hear the words, I never knew you, depart from me. You had a faith, a custom faith of your own, but not one that had any substance, not one that conformed to the truth of Scripture, the way in which you were called to believe on him. Here's one commentator's illustration regarding the distinction made by John in verse 18. I thought this was helpful. A visitor was being shown around an art gallery by one of the attendants. One of the attendants. In that gallery, there were certain masterpieces beyond all price, possessions of eternal beauty and unquestioned genius. You don't have to like, you know, art to get the point, right? So just go with it. At the end of the tour, the visitor said, well, I don't think much of your old pictures. It's one of those. The attendant answered quietly, sir, I would remind you that these pictures are no longer on trial, but those who look at them are. All that the man's reaction had done was to show his own pitiable blindness. So from the lesser to the greater, to the infinitely greater, this is so with regard to Jesus. If when a man is confronted with Jesus, his soul responds to that wonder and beauty, he is on the way to salvation. But if... When he is confronted with Jesus, he sees nothing lovely. He stands condemned. His reaction has condemned him. Interesting. What is your view of Jesus? What is your response to him? You know, one of the uh, telltale signs of shallow, superficial, damning faith is the lack of desire for the things of God, the lack of interest in his word and obedience to his commands and being with his people. You know, those are signs, right? It's a lack of interest in Christ because the things I mentioned are he is interested in and he has called you to give yourself to a lack of desire. It's that response, that reaction to him. What is your response? He is the way. He is the truth and the life. Right? Those who are trusting in him have eternal life and will not perish. 
those who are not trusting in him are judged and will perish unless they repent and believe. So you've heard it, right? The distinction is made. And this morning, the way of eternal life and eternal death have been set before you. Choose life. How? Choose life. What does the scripture say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Submit your life to him today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and Father, I ask that you would have mercy upon those in here who, whose hearts are hardened, who are self-deceived, or maybe not in, even self-deceived in believing they're truly Christians, but maybe they do not claim to be and do not see the urgency uh, of the faith that awaits them and the salvation that you have offered freely in your Son pray that you'd be merciful to them, that you would grant them repentance and faith that they might believe in your son and have eternal life in him. We pray that we as a church would continue to anchor ourselves in gospel truth, in your word, and be faithful witnesses to the message of salvation. And we thank you, Father, for being merciful to us who are truly yours, for giving us life and the hope of everlasting life and the hope of glory in your Son by your grace. Help us to not forget that we are standing in your grace. And apart from your grace, we too would be perishing. We would still be in our sins were it not for you intervening, were it not for you giving us life and making us new and saving our souls. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of your word, of the gospel, to be witnesses to the truth in our spheres of influence that you've providentially placed us in. May we do all these things for your glory and honor. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.